To be in the desert is to want something. Richard Wentz. We are here during Advent 2021, and we're in Luke chapter 3 this morning. And Luke is giving us a picture that no other writer gives us uh, of John the Baptist in the desert preparing the way for Jesus. So it's the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's in, a, it's in a desert landscape. It's east of Israel. It's all along the Jordan River, uh, even in the Transjordan space, I would imagine. And it's, it's dry. It's desolate. And the question that I had in reading this and studying this text and preparing for this lesson was, why, why did John call in his preparing the way for Jesus to come save us? In preparing the way for the Messiah, why does, why does God call us out to the desert? Why does John call us out? Why did John call the people out to the desert? And through John, why does God call us out to the desert to prepare the way, to prepare us for, for his arrival? Um, you know, John's, John's call, his, his message could be summed up in a word, and it is in the Gospels, as repent. Turn from your lifestyle, turn from the way that you're living, turn away from that and toward, toward God. And there's something about the desert that takes us to that place. I mean, even to go out there is to, is to, it's a declaration of wanting something. In a sense, it's wanting something new. And that means that something old has to die. And the desert is a place of death. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. It's a romantic idea that the desert's this beautiful, and it is a beautiful place, but it's, it's death is there too. Um, and the beauty of the desert is, in a sense, through death. It's a deadly place. And so God calls us to this deadly place so that he can kill our old life. He can kill things, the things that we've been clinging to so that we can finally turn to him. And that's what it takes. It takes harshness for us to get to that place. So, so that's where John is calling, as he's preparing the way for Jesus, his cousin, in his ministry. That's where he's calling people, that, the physical desert. And so we're going to talk some, especially in this first part of the message, about how God calls us to the desert, the metaphorical desert. He calls us to places in our lives that are hard, that strip us, because he's preparing us for himself. And that's a whole life. It's not just, hey, come to Jesus and believe on him and be saved for the first time, walk the aisle. It's, it's a whole life thing. It's he's preparing us to be with him face to face as our king forever, right? That's where we're headed is this forever place where we're going to be with him physically in the new creation. And that's never going to change. That's where we're headed. So, so this life is a, it's full of deserts and it kind of is a desert. It's C.S. Lewis called it the shadow lands. So, Luke, in the first verse, he's, he's such a historian. He brings up, um, he names five rulers, and he gives us two, two high priests to, 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 um, to cross-check us and put us exactly, to, to assure us this is exactly when this happened. And, and scholars say it was 29 AD, 29 AD. It was either, give or take, one year. So it was either 28, 29, or 30 AD. Those are our options. So Jesus was about 30 years old. We're told this in verse 23 of, we're in Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three, the first 17 verses, one through 17, outside of our text. 
in verse 23 in Luke 3:23, we're told that Jesus he was about 30 years old. He could have been a bit older, possibly a bit younger, but chances are he was a bit older, early 30s. Um, again, this John, just for clarity's sake, the John the Baptist that is the cousin of Jesus. He is about six months older than Jesus, um, born to Mary's aunt Elizabeth in her old age, and she was barren. So John's a miracle. He's a miracle baby, born of the priestly line. Um, child of promise in his, it was foretold that he was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So his ministry has just begun. All of Israel, in a sense, has been waiting for 30 years for this. It's a huge event. Um, it's about 29 AD, give or take a year. And Jesus and John are, are about 30 years old. So this is not the John, uh, the apostle. He's not one of the 12, not the, not the John that wrote the gospel, not the John that wrote the letters or the book of Revelation, John the Baptist, different John. Same name, different person. And he calls, he's in the desert and he's a wild man. And he, he's reminiscent of Elijah and he's, he's talked about in the Old Testament as being Elijah, uh, Reed of Evis, Elijah Redux. He's, the, the, the Old Testament prophets say that Elijah is going to come again. And when he does, he's going to make, he's going to pave the way for the Messiah. That's, that's John. He looks like Elijah. He's, he's wild and woolly. He lives in the desert like Elijah did. He, he wears camel hair, itchy. You know, rough, not fine clothes like like a like a man of luxury. He eats locusts and wild honey. And again, we always just kind of think, okay, he's in the desert. But think about why. Again, I mean, think about Elijah. He was in the desert as an expression, at least in part, of the fact that I mean, the desert is is death. It's death. I mean, the promised land was described in opposite terms as a garden place full of milk and honey, and Wherever God goes, greenery goes, the gardens go, cultivate, things cultivated. There's fruit. Fruit isn't in the desert. I mean, yeah, fruit on the cactus plant. But uh, but the desert is what Israel, during during the time of Elijah, which is, you know, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they were some of the wickedest rulers of Israel. Totally pagan, totally godless, totally evil. And they had made of of their world that God had given them of this garden land. They'd made a desert and God literally brought a, um, a three year drought through, through Elijah, through his word as judgment. And so we think of Elijah and we think of desert and that's as it should be because it's, it was a desert time and a desert place for Israel who would, and that's what our lives become when we don't, when we don't give ourselves to God, when we don't worship God and revolve around God, when we worship other things, when we revolve around ourselves or other things or people, our hearts become a desert. Our lives become a desert. And so John calls people out to that desert. He says, look what, since it was like, look, be honest about your sin. That's what repentance is. Be honest about the fact that you've made a desert of things. We've brought death on ourselves. Come to that place and be washed. So, so the word of God comes to this desert place. And it comes to, and that's verse two, right? The word of God came through John. And, and, and that's a huge event as we just think about this desert space and, and John the Baptist in it, calling, calling God's people out from these cities and towns east to the Jordan River Valley uh, and to the Jordan River to be baptized in preparation for Messiah. Um, the word of God came, Luke says, and it comes through John, this promised child. And so the time is now ripe. It's, it's about to be fulfilled. The Messiah is coming. It's a huge deal, not just because Messiah is coming. <laughs> that is the biggest deal. But the fact that the word of God has come to a prophet, John is, is in the line of, clearly of the prophets of the Old Testament, 
and they had not spoken a single word. God had not spoken a single word. He speaks through his prophets and he hadn't spoken um, through them for almost half of a millennium, for almost 500 years at this point. And when God doesn't speak, it's a desert. It's good when God speaks to us. It's bad when he doesn't. It's a sign of judgment. And this long silence was a lonely, terrifying thing to God's people. And when God's word comes, that means God comes because God is his word. And so God is coming to his people. The word of God came through John, and that means God himself is here and he's coming. And so it's a huge event. It's like from here back to the time of the Reformation, beginning of the Reformation, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. Um, that was that was almost exactly 500 years ago. That would have been, that's how long it had been. Like if, if God had not spoken to us at all for that long, that's what it felt like for Israel. So this is a huge event. It's not just a huge event because the word of God came, but who did it come to? Because of who it came to. It came not just to anyone, but again, as I said, it came to John, the son of Zechariah. That's how Luke phrases it. He didn't call him John the Baptist. He calls him John, the son of Zechariah. And that just is a reminder by Luke to us that this is the John prophesied to a parent who was old, who was past childbearing age with his wife, Elizabeth, and they were also barren. So they were doubly, they were doubly unable to have children past the age and they had never had been able to have kids. And they are both of the priestly line, both John and, excuse me, both Zachariah and Elizabeth are of the priestly line. And so John is born to priestly parents. It's the angel comes to um, John's father, Zechariah, when he's in the literal temple, a once in a lifetime opportunity, his lot is drawn and he's in the actual temple offering sacrifices for the people. And an angel appears and he says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be great. And he's going to make way for the greatest man to ever step on planet Earth, who's also going to be God and who's also going to be the Messiah. And he's also going to save his people, by the way. And it's just this huge bombshell. So for all of John's, even before John was born, his conception, his Elizabeth carrying him, his birth, when all of a sudden his dad's mouth has opened up. And Luke tells all about this in previous chapters, right? In chapters one and two. In chapter one, rather. But this whole region, all of Israel is waiting. And then 30 years, John's preparing for ministry. Finally, he starts preaching and the word of God comes and everyone's flooding out. Um, to the desert. It's a huge event that God's word has come and that it's come to this particular person. And again, it, just, it hasn't just come anywhere. It's come, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now we've talked about the desert some. There's so much more to say. But suffice it now, for now, to say that it conjures up thoughts of Elijah. He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Luke chapter 1. Um, but it's also a place of turning. Like I said, it's a place of hearing from God because it's a place of stripping of all of our busyness and of all of the false things that we cling to to save us, to look to for identity. It's a place of desperation and it's a place of preparation. Think of Moses in the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament didn't just, Jesus didn't just pop into a vacuum. John the Baptist didn't just pop into a vacuum. There's this whole history that's given to us in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and so this desert has a place, a really strong place in the, the cultural memory of, of, of God's people. Moses, he spent so much of his preparation time, all of it, really. Well, a lot of it 
in the desert, being dried out, being stripped of his pride, of his false understanding of of what his ministry would look like, of the fact that he would be the savior, and rather, of course, it ended up, of course, it was God who saved, and God used Moses, but not until he'd spent 40 years drying out in the desert, being stripped, being humbled as a shepherd, right? Thought his life was over. Paul, same thing. He goes out to the desert after he encounters the living God and is saved. He goes out to the desert for over a decade. God prepares him there. It's a place of stripping and preparation. And Jesus is the same. He goes out in place of Israel for 40 units of time for 40 days and nights and is stripped and is prepared for his ministry to save us. And there are so many other um, instances of that, Lord, but, uh, guys, but the, uh, the desert, the wilderness is a place of, of stripping and of preparation and of death to all that's false, right? Belden Lane, one of my favorite authors, certainly of like wilderness landscapes and encounters with God there. He says, he says in a book called the solace of fierce landscapes, which may be my favorite, uh, the desert kills, but it also gives life. Robust and insistent life. Nothing is more beautiful than the red splash of desert sky after a late afternoon storm. So I just want to say, as I sort of press this in to you, are you in a desert place? In many ways, we're sort of at the tail end of COVID. I pray it's the tail end. No one knows but God. In many ways, our world, our world is, has been in a desert place and, and remains in one and is sort of slowly emerging from a desert place. But whether you are in one now, you've, you've been in one, if you're old enough, um, if you've lived for, you know, even a few decades here on this earth, you've been in, in more than one desert place, or you're heading there because we live in the Shadowlands. We live in a world of pain. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, and he's right. He had trouble. Um, John's call is for you. Prepare your heart for the coming king. The desert will help prepare you. This place that God has you, he's placed you here in this hardship, in this place of pain. He wants to use it to strip you and to prepare you for, for him. So let him use it. Um, and of course, the other thing that the desert is going to bring to the collective memory of Israel is uh, certainly when it's coupled to baptism, which is what John's ministry is about. Is, is the Exodus, and that's as it should be. And that's something we don't think a lot about with John's ministry, but every Israelite would have thought of it. Um, coming through a desert place, crossing, going into the waters, coming out alive, being cleansed, being delivered. I mean, that's, that is Exodus imagery. God bringing his people out of, out of a, a desert land, through the Red Sea, eventually, you know, into a, into a wilderness, and eventually through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So, um, and this is this was God with a mighty hand, with no help from Israel, certainly saving his people. And that's that's a harbinger. John is saying his ministry is a harbinger of the one who's going to come, the same God who's going to come, um, who's going to come perform an even greater exodus. The one that the Old Testament exodus was just a, a shadow of. This is the reality. He's going to bring us out of out of the slavery of far greater slavery, the ultimate slavery of of our sin, which produces death which gives Satan dominion over us. He's going to shatter those chains and defeat those enemies for us and bring us into freedom. So that's, that's, that's who John is preparing 
God's people for in his ministry. And, and he's described as this voice, his whole, I mean, it's, it's, it's a line that's taken from Isaiah 40 and uh, it says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's John. And he is, his whole life is whittled down in a sense to that one word of voice. And that's what John is about. His, his whole life is a proclamation of get ready. Jesus is coming of preparing people for Jesus. And I just want to say again, as I press this home, would that, could that be a prayer for us? Would that that would describe us? Would that that would describe me that people could think of me and go, that man was a voice. That woman thinking of you was a voice or is a voice. They proclaim Jesus, not just in their words. Yes, in their words, they articulate. We know what the good news of Jesus is. We know what the offer of God is to us through the person of his son. And we know that there's no other way to be saved. At least we may not believe it, but we know it because this, this Taylor, he's a voice proclaiming it, but he's a voice proclaiming the goodness of God and the compassion of God and the mercy of God in the salvation and the justice and the power of God in the way that he lives through his actions as well as his words. He's up a piece. He's a voice. Would that that could be true of us? And the gospel that he's proclaiming is, as John, as Luke shows us, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, again, that does not mean if you kind of mash it together in your mind, you can think that that's sort of a call to get like repentance. Okay. Turn around get better, clean yourself up so that you can be forgiven. No, no, no. Repentance again is saying I've, it's a mentality. It's saying I've done, it's changing your mind from I'm okay to I'm not okay. So it's running out to the place of cleansing to the, to the Jordan river to be cleansed. It's running out to, to the, it's running out to God. It's running to God and saying, I can't do this anymore. My life is, I've made a hash of it. I'm, I'm unclean. Make me clean. It's the opposite of trying to clean yourself up and then get forgiven. And, and that's the message is run to the place where your sins will be forgiven. You will be cleansed and you'll be filled with the spirit of the living God and made new. That's, that's John's message. Um, back to just John as a voice. One, um, one commentator says that um, the whole man was a sermon. He's talking about John being reduced to this voice, being described as, not reduced to, but he's, his whole ministry in person is described as a voice, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and Plummer, a commentator, says the whole man was a sermon. I love that. Would that the whole of you, the whole of me could be, a sermon that would just preach Jesus Christ. Um, John's pretty rough. A lot of us, it's nice to skip over this stuff. Um, it's fun to sort of to, to say what I've said so far, but then when you get to verse seven, Luke three, seven, um, it gets hairy because a huge part of John's message is to flee from the wrath to come. It's terrifying. And he uses all sorts of fire language, and we're going to get to that in a second, maybe. But uh, he says, he calls the people that are coming out snakes. He says, you brood of vipers. You know, hey, snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
he's just been preaching salvation, but now he's telling he's warning us of wrath. And why is that? It seems like a mean, mean John. Well, it's only logical, right? That's what salvation is. A lot of times we think about salvation and we just think about it in honey, sugary, yummy terms. But salvation means that we're saved from something horrible. You know, if, if I throw you uh, a life raft, I throw you a buoy, a floating buoy at your feet and you're standing on dry ground, you're going to look at me like I'm nuts. It's not going to help you. It's stupid. Now, if you're drowning... Your head's about to go under. You're in an open sea and the waves are rising all around you. And I throw you a buoy. You're going to love it. You're going to love me. You're going to grab it with everything you can. That's because wrath is about to swallow you. And that's what John is saying. We need the offer of salvation is to us because our sins are dragging us down to hell. And we deserve the just judgment of God for the way that we've lived. But but John is saying one is going to come and step in our place. He's going to save us from that. And his name is Jesus. So flee to him because wrath is coming. If you don't, the storm won't pass over you and hit Jesus. It'll hit you. And that has to be, that's part of the Christmas message. And that has to be part of our message that he, he he's come to save us. But if we don't run to him, there is no salvation because from the wrath that's coming. So we either get wrath or mercy. Those are our two options. It's either run to Jesus and, and let him be judged in your place or be judged yourself uh, for the way that you've lived. Those are the two options. It's either trust in Jesus and receive him and embrace him and hide in him by faith or reject him. There is no third option. I think American culture convinces us that there is either that, either that God doesn't exist or um, that we don't have to reject Jesus or trust in him wholly. That there's a third way of just sort of ignoring him. That, but ignoring him is to reject him because the, the gospel, the message that God gives us in his son is that I've come to rescue you. There is no other way of escape. So to, to ignore that is to flout him. It's to reject him. It's to hate him. Those are our two options. And John makes that very, very clear. And Leon Morris, another commentator, says the wrath of God is an important topic in both Testaments, in the Old and the New Testament. He says it stresses the dev, divine hostility to all evil. I think that's a great way to think about it because, we, again, we can think about when John mentions wrath, um, you could think he's being a meanie. You could, you could think of the wrath of God and you think God's mean. But that, the wrath of God is God's hatred of evil. And the more we hate evil, the, the better we are. I've been listening to World War II history and you hear about um, Hitler and the Nazis and all the atrocities. And, you know, for to have no reaction to that is to the degree that you have no reaction to that is the degree to which you're evil. The degree to which you hate that is the degree to which there's goodness in you, right? That's just obvious to anyone. Um, and that is God hates evil supremely and perfectly because he's perfectly good. And he has to end it because he's perfectly good. But if he ends evil, he ends us unless there's a change in us and unless that evil's paid for. And that's what Jesus came for is to give us his righteousness and to change us by faith. We receive it by faith and to take the just wrath of God against us on himself as our full guy. Again, as we look to him by faith. And so that's what John comes preaching. And he says, hey, don't think that just because you're Jews, just because of your resume, just because of what you've done, just because you've done some good things or who you are or what you've done or who you know or whatever, your resume, your CV, don't think that's going to avail you at all. It doesn't matter to God. That will, that will avail you nothing because God can raise up from children from these rocks, he says. And that seems, again, very harsh 
but it's actually a hopeful word because it's saying there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Your connections won't help you. Your birth won't help you. You have to be the second birth is what you need. You have to be born of God, not of man, by faith in Jesus. And the hopeful part about that is is implicit in what I said, but also when he says that he, God can raise up children even from these rocks, it's an insult. But if we'll, if we'll let the insult land, what he's saying is hopeful, and that is this. That if God can bring life even from a rock, which is the deadest of dead things, he can, he can bring life. He can make me live. I don't have to come to him trying harder. I don't have to come to him cleaning myself up. I don't have to come to him having done some good stuff, dusting myself off, doing penance, going through purgatory. A rock is dead. And he can make a rock live. He can make us live. That's what he does. Look to Jesus, dead man, dead woman, and be saved. And it's also good news because it's saying, look, God didn't just come for the Jews. We're all dead. And that's it. we all need saving. And that's a huge word of hope to the world, not just to one type of people, Americans, Jews, whomever. God came to save everyone. We're all rocks and we all need to be made alive. We can all be made his children if we look to Jesus. That's that's why he came. The son came to make us sons. And that, you know, the fact that John is baptizing says that to the Jews. It doesn't say it to us, but to the Jews in that context, fleeing out to the wilderness, to the Jordan to be baptized by John, that's what it said. Because in that context, there was only, Jews weren't baptized. Only non-Jews were baptized. They're called proselytes. Non-Jews, Gentiles, that wanted to become Jews. They were called proselytes. And only proselytes were baptized, not Jews. And so there's a sense in which the Jews are saying, we're special, and indeed the Jews are special. But we're special, we don't need cleansing like Gentile dogs do. John is saying, he's calling everyone out, including, it's mainly Jews. There are probably some Gentiles sprinkled in. Some soldiers, he speaks to some soldiers. They could have been Roman Gentiles. Um, and he's saying, it. no, you're all on a level playing field. You all need baptized. You all need cleansed. And of course, the water doesn't do anything, but it's a symbol of the fact that Jesus is going to come and cleanse us. And he's going to fill us with the fire of God, the Holy Spirit, the life of God, the person of God. And he's saying we all need it. We're all on a level playing. We're all rocks. We all need washed we all need to be made sons through a second birth. The first time isn't good enough. So John goes on, that's the desert, and, and uh, he goes on to talk about the fruit, and, and they say, okay, so the message gets through to him, right? Like, well, okay, we, we're Jews. We need repentance. We need say. We need repentance for the baptism, for the forgiveness of sins. We need to be cleaned. Um, we need to get ready for this Messiah. What do we do? And John says something... Um, really surprising actually and it's surprising and shocking to me because it's just so practical and so simple and has so much to do with everyday life he says essentially be content with what you have share any excess that you have with those that have less and be honest and that is that is amazing he so let me give you a concrete example of, of the, that he gives he's soldiers there are two you know Two there are lots of people coming out, but two types in particular are mentioned in, here in this text. Some, one are soldiers and, and one are tax collectors. 
and both were despised. You know, Roman, there would have been Roman soldiers. They were despised by the Jews. And then the tax collectors were despised by the Jews. And John could have easily, when they say, what do we need to do? What acts, of, what works of repentance do we need to do? How do we need to show that we're serious about this? About, about getting ready for forgiveness for, for the Messiah, for the coming king. And he says, uh, he could have said, quit, quit working for the Romans, quit being a soldier, oppressing the Jews, and quit uh, tax collecting. You're, you're being dishonest. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say quit your job. He says, do your job well. Do it honestly and do it with excellence. Right? Um, if you have two things, share one thing with the one who has zero. He talked about food. He talked about clothing. If you have two tunics, share one of them. If you have more food than you need, share it with the one who's starving. Don't cheat, be honest, and be content. Now, that is terrifying in a sense because it's, it's hard to get around. Like our faith is going to affect the way that we actually live and the, the, down to the things that we have, the way we spend our money, our possessions, the way that we treat other people, our hearts being content. And... My house is full of stuff that's excess, and there are lots of people out there that are hurting, and I need to live differently. But another thing that it says that's, I think, more broadly applicable is that John doesn't say quit your job if you're a Christian. He says this, kind of, this is the kind of king who's going to come who's going to affect all of life, and he's come for all of life. His kingship is overall. It's not just on Sundays. It's not just, quote, when you're worshiping, when you're singing on Sunday morning. Um, it's not just when you're on your knees praying. Or writing a check to the church. This is the kind of king that he affects your work. He wants you to work honestly. He wants you to work hard with excellence. He wants you to share. He wants you to be content. He's going to change you from the inside out, and it's going to affect all the whole way that you live. And the way that you worship this king and follow him is to live differently in every area of life, because he's going to bring that about. So, so being a Christian means to let that Christ rules in every area of your life, the way that you spend your money and your possessions, because they're all his. He's the king. We're the stewards. Um, in the in the way that you, in the way that your heart works, in the way that you don't cling to stuff that you're satisfied with what God's given you, in the way that you share what you have because you know it's it's his, and you're looking out for others and not just yourself. So it changes this this Jesus. He's coming. This Messiah. And he's going to claim, uh, he's going to claim all of our lives because he's the king. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, this word about, about fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is the kind of fruit he talks about. It's very practical and it's sobering. That if we're Christians, uh, our lives are going to show it. And if they don't show it in the way that we live with what we have, with our money, with our generosity, with our sharing, with our contentment, then we need to we need to really question whether or not we're his at all. I've heard it said that a checkbook is a theological document, and if you if you if you use if you spend your money and save your money and invest your money like it's yours and yours alone and not his, uh, that says a lot about what you actually believe, and so you really need to question your salvation. You need to question whether or not you're his at all. You may, you're probably living like you're the king. And if you're living like you're the king, then your allegiance is certainly not to Jesus. So there's a, there's a <laughs> flee from the wrath to come. There's a, there's a call to repentance right there.
Now, John finishes with this statement in verses 15 through 17 of, um, of total truth. And it's, again, if you know the context, uh, the cultural context, it's, it's even more shocking. There was a, so they say, hey, were you the, are, are you the one? And, 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 John, and John could have easily stolen the spotlight for a time anyway. Truth would have found him out. But he was, like I said at the beginning of this message, he was the man. I mean, people have been waiting. He, he was the first one to speak a word of God in 500 years. And people have been waiting um, for this to happen. And he was on a priestly line, a promised child and a great pedigree, and on and on it goes. His words were powerful. He had a massive following. And they said, are you the one? And he easily could have said, yeah, it's me. Nobody even knew Jesus yet. He was obscure. People thought he was, he was born a bastard child of, um, of, 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 a, of out of wedlock, because Joseph certainly wasn't his father. But nobody believed God was his father. Nobody knew yet. And most, few people did believe that even while he was on the earth. He certainly wasn't born of a priestly line. He was born in the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So John could have stolen the spotlight for a while, but he doesn't dare. He says, oh, not only am I not the one, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Now, we, we've heard that so much that it loses its force. There was a saying among Jews in that time. It said something like, um, a servant can pretty much, you can ask a servant to do anything, a household servant to do anything, but the one thing you can't ask him to do is to untie your sandals, to lose your sandals, because your feet are so disgusting that even that is too degrading for a servant. So do it yourself. And that was a well-known sort of trope or aphorism um, uh, in that time, apparently. And what John says, he utilizes that. He says, no, let me flip that. I'm, I'm not even worried. He, this guy's, this one that's coming is so much greater than I am. He's so far out of my league that I'm, I'm not even worthy to do that to him. I'm not even worried to touch his foot. And that's true. John's right. God is coming. And none of us is worthy to touch his feet. But what he's going to come do is he's going to come and serve us. He's going to come touch us and make us whole. He's going to wash our feet and he's going to lay his life down for us and have his feet pierced. That's the kind of king he is. He's humble. And his humility will be the ultimate display of his power as he's crucified for us to save us. And he will rise. And so this is John's message, um, a message that comes to us in the desert. It speaks of fruit and it finishes with with fire. John says, look, I'm coming with water to cleanse, but he's going to come and he's going to bring fire. And it's a message where he sort of returns to the theme of judgment. Those that don't flee to him will be burned up forever, but those that that do will be filled with a holy fire. I think it's a double meaning, sort of casting forward to Pentecost in Acts two. We're going to be filled with a fire that's because fire either destroys or 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 purifies, depending on what the material is. So if we're born a second time, we're born of of God, and that what that does is that means the fire of God lives in us and cleanses us and purifies us and empowers us. But if we aren't aren't born a second time and we simply rely on our first birth and our own efforts and connections, then we're made of, of wood or hay. Um, and, and, and we will, and the, the fire of God will, will incinerate us. And that's what John's saying here. Um, I'll finish with a story that I've told a few times of um, 
pioneers uh, in in the 19th century in America, moving west during the westward expansion on the continent, and they they would be passing through the miles and miles of prairies and high grass, and sometimes they would see a flicker of light in in the distance, and that was that was death to them. That was high panic because they knew that that was uh, a prairie fire, and a prairie fire would with the wind, with the prairie, with the prairie winds, it would it would spread fast and it would devour everything because they just had the fuel of the high grass uh, to burn up, and so there was nowhere to go, and and whole parties would be destroyed through these prairie fires. And they learned the the one the one way to survive was to create what they called a burn circle, so that they would burn out the area before the fire got to them. They would burn out the area that they were in and stand inside of that area. So that when the fire, the prairie fire came, it would burn around them, but they would be safe because they had already, they were in the burn circle. They were in the place that the fire had already consumed. And that's exactly what Jesus is. That's what John is saying in part. That's what he's, that's what he's preparing us for is that this Messiah is going to come and mind blowingly, he's going to be our safe hiding place because he's going to be the place where the fire, the wrath of God against our sin has already come. And so to hide in him by faith is to hide in the only safe place there is because the wrath is coming. And this is this is a huge part of the hopeful and celebratory me- message of Christmas. Uh, and I pray that it sinks all the way down deep into your heart. And I wish you a very Merry Christmas.